Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. In Her Room is supported by listeners like you. Contribute to keeping the show ad-free at patreon.com slash inherroom, or visit our website to make a one-time donation. Your support keeps women's voices on the air. This week's guest on In Her Room is Laura Benedict. From her home in the southern tip of the Midwest, Laura Benedict writes with true southern gothic finesse. Her stories of ghosts and lovers, haunted mansions, and things lurking in the woods thrill readers and take them on a journey of suspense and the unexpected. Though she rarely wears black and sometimes shares funny cat videos, Benedict's work is dark, scary, and always manages to find the light in the shadows. Laura, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Oh, Sarah, thank you so much for having me on. I've really been looking forward to this. Me too. I'm so thrilled to finally be talking about your work on a bigger platform. We've been connected for a few years now, and it's just really exciting to be able to share your work with others. I have to admit, I am a huge fan, um, so I have a little bit of personal bias here, but I'm just so thrilled (laughs) to have you on the show. Well, great. Well, that's a really wonderful way to start then. Thank you. Absolutely. I want to talk especially about your new book, which is coming out in October, called Charlotte's Story. But before we dive into that, I would love to know, what is writing to you? What is writing to me? Oh, writing to me is, oh, it's like, it's like my heartbeat. Um, I didn't know I was going to be a writer, but once I discovered it, it you know, it's the thing that motivates me in so many ways. And if I don't do it, um, I find that I'm not, I'm not a whole person without being able to, to write. So, I mean, it really is, maybe that's simple, maybe that's complicated, but (laughs) writing, writing is kind of like breathing. It's Mm. a necessary element of my life. Mm. You know, it's something I hear a lot from folks who come on this show and and when I talk to other writers, it's there's often that sense of necessity that whether it's figuring out what we're thinking or feeling through our writing or whether it's just the thing that we have to do, um, I hear that a lot. So it doesn't sound crazy or strange at all. It's very common. And I think that that's a really important characteristic for us as writers to be able to acknowledge that and say, hey, when I'm not doing this thing, I don't feel right. Well, not only do I not feel right, I apparently don't act right either. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, my I, I get grumpy with my family and I my friends are like, oh, have you been writing? Because maybe you need to go do that. <laughs> Because I, I I have a very hard time focusing on things, oddly enough, um, and I am quite ADD, actually ADD. And if I if I don't have that concentrated focus time, I just get more and more scattered. And the writing, um, because it, it's it, it's also a practice, kind of like yoga is a practice. And so, so just the act of doing it really keeps me centered. Mm, absolutely. 
you recently published a blog post where you talked a little bit about that. Uh, I think it really touches on that idea of keeping you centered and keeping you focused. And also this post, which I had to laugh at because only because this is my life. Um, you talked a lot about the resistance that comes up to writing and particularly listed all the things that you did before you sat down to write that <laughs> blog post. And I just, I loved that piece because it really, I was like, yes, that is absolutely me. This is everything that I do. And I'd love to know how it was for you to talk about that so openly in your post and how it feels looking back on it now. Well, I, you know, the, the thing about me is I don't really have any secrets. <laughs> and as a writer, I, I want, I want people to know me as a person and as a, as somebody who has struggled with writing. And I think any, I think every writer struggles and any writer who says that they don't struggle against resistance is probably lying. Maybe not intentionally, but they're, they're fooling somebody, perhaps themselves. Um, and it, it just, it's so, it's so important to be in touch with, you know, directly to the writing and to understand that it can sometimes feel more powerful than we actually are. And that power is so frightening. And so what I wanted to do was, was let people know that, Hey, you know, I'm afraid of this too. You know, my husband has been writing for 30 years or more as I have and publishing and all of my friends who've been writing a long time, every single writer struggles with resistance. And so for me, it was not so much a, a confession as an acknowledgement. And I, I occasionally want to reach out and say to other writers, hey, you know, it's okay. <laughs> it's really okay if you're feeling this and if you're doing laundry instead of writing <laughs> or, you know, arranging your desk, you know, my, my things tend to be, you know, even more far-fetched because I'm very centered in my home and I'm very, I, you know, we homeschool. And so everything else often feels way more important than my work. Mm. And, but part of that is, it's not just my struggle with prioritizing, it's, it's that resistance. It is that resistance because if you're feeling resistance, you know, you really need to be writing. Mm. And that's, that's the truly important thing. If you're resisting it, you need to be doing it. That's such great advice. It really is. I want to talk about your books. You write Somewhere between classic horror and suspense fiction with, I think, a little bit of Southern Gothic thrown in, though some folks might argue with me on that. And I'd love to know, how, how did you start writing these kinds of stories? What pushed you and compelled you to say, yep, this is what I'm going to write? That's a really good question. Um, and there are a couple answers to it. First, I love horror fiction and I love Gothic fiction and I love Southern Gothic. 
Um, and uh, having grown up in Kentucky, I feel, and raised two Virginians, <laughs> I, I, I do try to claim the uh, Southern Gothic nomenclature. Mm. Um, so I, I, I have always read, uh, I, you know, I grew up with Stephen King, of course, and I adored Sherlock's, Sherlock Holmes. So I love, I love mysteries in addition to horror. Um, yeah, I also read things like, you know, flowers in the attic, you know, that sort of Gothic creepiness with a Mm -hmm. sexual edge and, and I mean, Gothic always has kind of a sexual edge to it. If you, a good Gothic, I think does. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I actually started writing and, and as I said, I came to it late, I was in my mid twenties. And so I started taking, uh, I had already graduated from college and I, I just really wanted to try my hand at fiction. And so I took classes at the university I'd graduated from and I found myself gravitating more toward a genre fiction fiction style. I hadn't read a lot of literary fiction and I didn't really know that literary fiction was different from genre fiction. Does that, um, that may sound mm-hmm. crazy. No, that, I actually get that. I, I, I had a business degree. And so I, I didn't really understand. I, I love to read and I've always been a reader since, you know, I was four, but I didn't really understand the distinction. I just thought books were books were books. And that if you learn to write, that you would write books, you know, with, without distinctions. And I discovered that there was this thing called literary fiction that they were teaching in colleges. And I ended up in a workshop. I kind of talked my way into, after I'd taken introductory classes, talked my way into a grad fiction workshop. And it was horrifying. It was so horrifying to be in there with people who were writing completely different things from what I was interested in. Because I love story and I love plot. I love to be scared. I love to be titillated. I love to be excited. I love to be moved. And those are not, if you look under literary fiction, that's really not the list. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I mean, any good book will do those things and well-written books, yes. So I, I knew I was moving toward, a, toward genre fiction. And then when uh, my husband, Pinckney Benedict, and I got married, he really helped me understand because he teaches in several MFA programs. And he said, okay, this is not what you're doing. And I had to kind of come to terms with that because I didn't really understand what I was doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I was just writing and he said, well, this is kind of what you write. And because he was uh, is a literary writer and we're married and we wanted to stay married, I made a very conscious decision to move well away from contemporary literary fiction. And, and that's kind of how I got here in a, you know, in a detailed sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one thing I did find over the years is I don't just 
the supernatural isn't necessarily what I want to always be writing because I'm really drawn to crime fiction. All of my books have crimes in them and they generally have a mystery in them. So going back to the beginning, you know, my books really are a synthesis of several different genres. And I know that can confuse people sometimes. <laughs> so uh, it's a, it's a really good question. Well, and I think there's also been, you know, I think with every good writer, there is an evolution in our writing, but at the same time, there's still that thread of consistency. And I think the, the element of having a crime involved, uh, the mystery, the suspense, the, um, the gothic elements, those continue through all of your books, you know, and even with your early works, uh, I'm thinking particularly of Isabella Moon here, there's still that sense. And as you come forward to your latest novels, both Bliss House and Charlotte's Story, you have that, that continuation and there's still books written by Laura Benedict, but they have this evolution and this growth. And I think that's a, a great sign for us as writers to remember, like, we're writing these things and we're, as we continue writing them, going to improve and going to change. And it also brings us closer to the work that we want to be writing. Yes, that that evolution. And, and there's so many writers. Well, I won't say writers. There's so many publishers who don't particularly want to see writers evolve, um, particularly in the genre area, because they know or they believe they know what the readers want and they believe the readers want the same thing over and over again. And I think that becomes a danger because a lot of writers end up feeling pigeonholed because they are, are pigeonholed. Um, and I, I like to read there. I, I think there's a place for that sort of, sort of fiction because, oh my gosh, how much do I love to pick up, you know, an Agatha Christie, <laughs> You know, oh yeah, I, mean, I, I love an <laughs> Agatha Christie book because it, it it's almost <laughs> I mean, it's it's a strange sort of word for it, but it it's almost like um, it's almost like pornography. You know what to expect mm -hmm. every single time. You read it for a particular experience of the work. You already know how it's going to make you feel. You already know the mental exercises you're going to go through. And that is a kind of narcotic uh, slash pornographic type of work. And I think we all need that. I, you know, I, I, like I said, I enjoy Agatha Christie, but then again, if I, if I look at somebody like, um, Louise Penny, I don't know if you know Louise Penny's books, mm -hmm. her in, Inspector Gamache mystery series, they're, they're classified as cozies. Um, but I'll tell you what, her character development, particularly over the arc of these nine or 10 books is astonishing. And I read them for the writing. The mysteries are there, but I read the books for the writing. And her writing has grown. And it's it's so fun to be able to, to see writers combine growth with that kind of reader expectation. And it's, but, but going back to publishers, you know, I think a lot of writers get discouraged. Mm-hmm. 
because they're they're writing to a market. And I have never particularly tried to write to a market. Um, I'm not an outliner. I, I can't, if I tell myself a story and sketch it out, the story is told for me. Hmm. So, so even within books, the book has to evolve. I mm-hmm. cannot decide what the book is going to be first because I, I like to be surprised. Hmm. That's awesome. I, so I want to talk more specifically about your latest book, Charlotte's Story, which is not a sequel, but a return to the setting of your previous novel, Bliss House. And I'd love to know how that story evolved for you and and what it means to not be writing a sequel, but to return to a place. It is so fun. <laughs> I love having a place to come to, a place that is already constructed in my head. I'm a huge fan of architecture. If I hadn't been a writer, I think I might have actually decided to be an architect. And I adore haunted houses. And so when I thought about writing Bliss House, I just realized I had this house and there were so many stories in it because the the house is the central character. And the house doesn't really change, but the people within it change. So Bliss House is a contemporary story, you know, takes place now or, you know, basically 2014. And I wanted to move in time backwards, back to the origins of the house. And right now there are three books total. It'll be Bliss House and then Charlotte's Story and then The Abandoned Heart, Mm -hmm. which will come out in uh, 2016. And with Charlotte's Story, whereas whereas I went for... I, with Bliss House, I kind of went for a gothic, more thriller and horror with strong horror elements. And Charlotte's story takes place in 1957. And Charlotte Bliss is a young married woman. And she loses her four-year-old, her four-year-old daughter dies quite early in the book. And it's the mystery of how the child actually died um, and how the revelation of what her marriage is really like. And we see it through several ghosts and the house itself. And the thing about Bliss House is Bliss House will always give you what you think you want Mm -hmm. because the things that we think we want are often not the things that we actually should have. And I just, that, that is sort of my concept for Bliss House. And so Charlotte's story, going back to that, I love being back in the fifties. I wasn't actually born in the fifties, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I love immersing myself, you know, in the clothes and the, you know, the cultural expectations and the cars and the, you know, the ghosts are actually from an earlier era. So uh, it's it's so nice to have 
a place that you've come up with in your head that you can go back and revisit and say, well, what was going on in 1957? What would have been going on in the house? You know, there are servants there. So there are more interactions like that. It's just, I, like I said, as, as an ADD person, I really love new novel and interesting things. And so being in the same house, it gives me a really strong basis to start from. And I can really, you know, run with the characters in the story. Mm-hmm. I'd love it if you might read us an excerpt of your new novel. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> I think all all writers like to be asked to read. <laughs> I think so. And it's so it's so fun to read from um, from a book that isn't isn't out yet, and so this is a treat for me. Uh, I'm gonna read. Uh, chapter two of Charlotte's story. And in chapter one, um, Charlotte, I, I sort of paint the halcyon image of living in Bliss House, where she is with her husband and their children are sleeping upstairs. And she wakes at the end of chapter one to learn that her her four-year-old daughter has has drowned. So chapter two is called The Children's Grove. I could feel the eyes of all of Oldgate on us once again. Once again, I was grateful for the dense veil draped over the front of the black silk hat I'd bought for Olivia's funeral. Its netting was more difficult to see out of than that of more delicate veils, but it also meant that it was harder to see behind it. Of course, friends and acquaintances alike wanted to see my face, Death had come to Bliss House again so quickly, and their eyes were hungry for its effect on us. If I'd been thinking hard about it, I might have hated them all on that achingly clear, horrid October morning. But I wasn't thinking about them. I was beyond thinking. I existed in a state that barely recognized words or even other people. Eva was dead, and I was the one responsible. As Father Aaron's voice droned in the background, I watched a fly drift from rose to rose on Eva's tiny, oh God, impossibly tiny white coffin. They were fat yellow roses from the garden at Bliss House, the garden where I'd pushed her as a baby in the big English pram that had once held Preston, the garden whose recently replanted maize had grown just tall enough to hide her as she ran away from Noni and me. Had it been only a few days earlier? her laughter ringing shrill and joyful in the fall sunshine. The fly finally alighted, crawling over a single spotless petal, stopping every few seconds to rub its front feet together, feeding or washing, defecating, defiling, defiling. Unable to bear it any longer, I lunged forward to sweep the thing away off of my baby's coffin, breaking the rhythm of Father Aaron's godly imprecations, giving gathered old gate confirmation of my pain, my pain and my shame. The armful of stems which the florist had loosely tied together with a white ribbon flew off the cotton and scattered at the feet of the priest. Preston grabbed me from behind, wrapping one arm about my waist and firmly staying my upraised arm with his other hand. As he pulled me from the grave, I heard a feral keening that might have been mistaken for the call of some terrified animal. But of course, it was my own cry. 
I can still hear it in my mind when Bliss House is restless in its silence and I think of that day. I collapse back onto press. Charlotte, Charlotte. His voice was a fierce whisper in my ear. Was he admonishing or comforting me? Now I think it was something else entirely. Noni, seated behind us with Michael on her lap, released an uncharacteristic sob. Michael was blessedly silent. Press led me back to my chair and helped me sit down. A part of me wanted to tell him about the fly, to explain, but the words wouldn't come. People talk of the numbness of grief, but I wasn't numb. I felt as though the outermost layer of my skin had been peeled away so that the halting breaths and pitying gazes of everyone around us chafed me like dried thistles. In the end, it was my father who calmed me, taking my hand gently as though he knew how much any touch would hurt. Father Aaron continued the burial liturgy, condemning my daughter to darkness. By the time we crossed the graveyard, my black high heels sinking into the soft ground as we made our way toward the line of cars waiting along Church Street, I was calmer. All was muted and quiet, and time had still not returned to its normal pace. A single white cloud hung motionless in the sky above our heads, and even the chiming of the quarter hour from the carillion at the Presbyterian Church at the end of the block seemed too long and slow. My father was at my side. Press walked a few steps ahead, his head down, the hems of his pants wearing a thin line of morning damp from the brown and gold leaves strewn over the dying grass. He seemed to be watching the ground. I couldn't know if he had chosen to leave me to the care of my father or just couldn't bear to walk by my side. He had assured me again and again that he didn't blame me for Eva's death, but how could I be certain? Though he had been the one to leave the house while the children napped and I slept, drunk with champagne, how could he have known that I wouldn't wake before the children, that Eva would get out of bed and try to give herself a bath? In my heart, I knew I was at fault. I clung to my father's hand, a lifeline. Far behind us in the children's grove, the gravediggers had begun to shovel dirt into Eva's grave. I wanted to run back to them to help, or better, to do it myself. Were there places in the world where mothers were the ones who buried their children, clearing the ground of grass and leaves as though readying it for a garden, hauling away the stones, cleaving the naked dirt with a spade, the force of it driven by their wordless pain? There could be no better way to use that pain, that sharp, relentless, endless pain that sat like a rock in my gut and pulsed its poison throughout my body. Eva's grave had been dug that morning, or the day before, I didn't know, didn't want to know, but I could at least help to cover her, hide the bright white coffin away in the sheltering earth. Who better to lay a child to sleep than her own mother? Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I'd love to know the best advice you've ever received. <laughs> well, I guess the best writing advice is that I have ever received is the simplest, and that is to keep your butt in the chair. That it won't get written unless you are sitting down or standing up, as it were, to write it. That that is that is the number one rule. You you actually have to do the writing because you can't be a writer without doing the writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but that's it. Yeah. How many how many people do we all know who call themselves writers or say, I would be a writer if I just had the time? And I call BS on that. There's no writer on the planet who actually has time to write. 
mm-hmm. because of life. Life happens and life is not necessarily rarely conducive to reflective thought, silence, and concentration. You know, chaos is always trying to come in. And so you have to steal that time. So you won't get it done unless you sit down and do it. Absolutely. Oh, the other good advice, the other best advice is not to carry any consumer debt. I'm serious. I'm serious. That, that is the other thing, not being debt free actually changed my life in a huge way. And, um, that, that has actually freed me up for writing, which is good. Hmm. Yeah. You've mentioned your partner, Pinkney Benedict, who's also a writer and you've worked on a couple of different projects together, but one of the things that you create co-created was something called Surreal South, which is of a collection of short fiction by other writers. And there's currently three volumes. And I'd love to know how you came to create this project together and how important it is for you to share the work of others who are writing sort of in this same genre that you are operating in. Well, we came to it um, because uh, somebody, a woman named Cheryl Monks and uh, a publisher, uh, Kevin Watson at Press 53, said to us, what would you like to do? We'd love for you to do something for us. And um, Pinckney was extremely busy teaching at the time and kind of doing his own work. And I was in the middle of of Isabella Moon and sort of getting that launched. And so we decided an anthology would be a really good place to start. So we took the theme of Surreal South and really that just came up with that title, which I just love because we wanted to keep it Southern. We wanted to keep it weird. And one thing we have found is there wasn't, you know, this was back in what 2007 was the first one. So we really started it in 2000 and no, so seven, nine, 11. Okay. So back in 2006, when we were kind of getting it going, you know, the, the self-publishing thing hadn't really taken off quite yet. And so there were not all that many outlets for people with work that didn't necessarily fit in uh, the traditional, uh, you know, literary magazines or genre magazines. And so we knew a lot of people. We know many writers and we know many writers from both the genre and the literary worlds. And we both love work by people like Joyce Carol Oates, like her grotesque work. You know, Joyce writes, you know, just a hell of a horror story. Mm-hmm. And they're so well done. And she, I mean, she really calls them grotesques because they are sort of warped versions of human beings, not necessarily supernatural, though she does do gothics, but just surreal weirdness. And we love that kind of work. And, and so we went to a lot of the writers that we knew 
And we really went mostly for prominent names like Robert Olin Butler and Tom Franklin and Joyce, um, Lee Abbott. We put those folks in there to, you know, sort of balance out and shore up and, and be able to put more new writers in the book. So it would be a good spread of, you know, established and up and coming writers. And it was really funny because the more famous writers actually had kind of a hard time coming up with surreal stuff. And we're just like, no, really, it's okay. You can be as weird as you want. Give us your weirdest thing. And it kind of freaked them out <laughs> because <laughs> literary, literary writers aren't used to doing that. And in fact, um, Benjamin Percy, who has written two you know, two really big recent horror novels. Um, he, he did not have a lot of surreal work and he brought us his most surreal story. And so now he has actually moved into that realm, which I, we really love to see. And he was very much an emerging writer back then. And, uh, so with subsequent, with subsequent volumes, we were able to cast the net wider and encourage people who weren't being received elsewhere. And, you know, it's, it's such a rush to find those stories and just say, this is fabulous. This is interesting. This is strange. I want to read this. And it, it's just really, it's just an exciting place to be. And we, we stopped. Um, it, it's good to encourage people. Because, you know, every writer is so blessed by the people who are in their corner and who don't, ex you know, who, who push them to do new things or accept something that they didn't know was going to be acceptable to somebody. So that, that was just so much fun. And we did uh, 2007, 2009, and 2011. And it just got to be a lot of work with mm -hmm. both of our careers. And so Josh Woods, who was actually an assistant editor uh, or associate editor on um, 9 and 11, he went on and did 13. And so I, they have stopped the series, but I can't say that it might not pop back up again somewhere. <laughs> but it, it really is just a, it was a project of the heart and it was tons of work, but it was also tons of fun. And now let me say there, there are many, many more opportunities for writers to put that sort of work out for themselves or to band together with other, you know, other weirdos, <laughs> you know, and, and they reach, readers can find them now in a way they couldn't back then. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about another project that you and Pygmy have worked on together, which is Gallows Tree Press. Yes. And, and part of the, the drive to create Gallows Tree Press was to make available your backlist in other formats, particularly as ebook formats. And I'm thinking about the, the, interesting experience that you've only briefly touched on about getting your rights back from a major publisher yes after publication to be able to make them available again and I'd love to hear however 
small or large amount of that story you can tell? Sure. I'm happy to share that. Well, first, I have a fabulous agent who I don't know if she was born reading contracts. <laughs> she may have been born with a contract in her hand. And she, so her name is Susan Rayhofer at the David Black Agency. And I've known Susan a long time. She actually, when Pinkney first started, she was the foreign rights agent in uh, David Black's office. And now she has her own extensive client list that, you know, she, she's actually got a really nice list now. And I'm one of her clients. And when Susan did my contract with Ballantyne, which was for two books for Isabella Moon and Calling Mr. Lonely Hearts, she made sure because again, this was the, the contract was made in 2006 when things were really changing. Um, publishers were very much starting to hear from agents and writers that they weren't going to put up with the publisher holding on to rights forever unless they keep the books in print. Because with the advent of possibilities like self-publishing and small presses republishing things, there were just too many opportunities that people were, that the publishers were sitting on for basically no reason, right? And, I, you know, I had a great contract with them. They gave me lots of lovely money and we promoted the books and the books did their job. But um, when it came down to the contract, when they let the books go out of print, they came, the rights came back to me fairly quickly. If they were not published, I think, I don't know, it was, you know, like 18 months or something, then the rights reverted to me. And by that time, for both of those books, and it happened somewhat faster for Calling Mr. Lonely Hearts, the second book, because they did not do a paperback. So that came back to me faster. And so I got the rights back kind of all at the same time for both books. And fortunately, by that time, um, it really was possible for me to put up, out those books as Gallows Tree. And Pinkney and I sat down and said, so what, you know, how are we going to do this? We can, you know, we can do it through CreateSpace or we can do it just on Kindle. And we wanted to be a little we wanted to be more flexible than that. We wanted to have our own press, you know, so I started, you know, I, we pay all the taxes and we're registered as an LLC so that we have that mechanism in pay, in place for publishing. And so I went ahead and learned all about formatting and I already knew about the marketing stuff, <laughs> finding covers and that sort of thing. And then uh, uploading them. And it was, uh, so getting the rights back was really the easy part for me. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not true for a lot of writers. Anybody who is, who would like to get their rights back, who need to get their rights back problem and is having a problem probably needs a letter from a lawyer. If the contract is not clear, a good rights lawyer is somebody who can help you. 
because publishers tend to want to hold on to things that they think might make the money later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And that's logical. That's the way the system works. You want to hold on to things of value, but fortunately or unfortunately that work is going to have way more value to the writer than mm -hmm. the publisher, you know, and if your work is sitting there languishing in a publisher's backlist, you know, you want your work out there. A writer wants to have his or her work out there or readers can't read it. And uh, the other thing that has been great about Gallows Tree is it's given me the chance, uh, like we did, uh, I did a charity anthology and I had some co-editors on it. It was called Feeding Kate to help raise money for a, a Facebook Twitter friend. A woman needed surgery. And so, and she was much beloved by many people who were writers. And so I was able to, you know, have that system in place where we could do a Kickstarter and have, you know, uh, actual paper copies as premiums. And then she gets the proceeds of the ebooks. Mm. And that was wonderful to have that. And uh, it, it also was extremely helpful to me when Devil's Oven, my third book, I was finished with that. And because Calling Mr. Lonely Hearts had not, they hadn't released it in paperback. And I don't know if you remember 2009 in publishing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the, the black hole <laughs> of, of the, of the, uh, uh, first decade of, mm -hmm. of the new millennium. Uh, yeah, 2009 was really bad for a lot of people. A lot of people got dumped by their publishers and I, my work was dropped. They did not bring out Calling Mr. Lonely Hearts in paperback. And I was heartbroken and devastated. And when the third, I had this third book ready and I didn't have the sales and we couldn't sell it. You know, I, I guess it went out to about 20 publishers and I was just like, you know, this is just stressing me out. So I said, I'm going to put it out. So I did. And I'm so glad that I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 2009, the year we don't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think maybe we talk about it, but mostly in therapy right. or, or among other writers. Yeah. It was a, it was a real crucible time. That was a crucible time and it hurt a lot of people, but it was a correction that, you know, I, I, I don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know where you're drawing inspiration and what you're devouring these days. Oh, golly. You know, I, my inspiration comes from so many places. I love art. I adore visual art. I mean, I adore writing art as well, but I can spend days and weeks in looking at artwork. I'm, I'm pretty visual. Um, so recently I have been dragging my son and I won't say dragging. He really loves museums too. Um, the, the abandoned heart, this, this third bliss house book 
is going to have um, some Japanese elements in it. And so I've been, you know, we've been looking at so much Japanese art and ceramics. Uh, we've gone to Minneapolis, we've gone to Indianapolis, we've gone to St. Louis, all have wonderful museums um, and books. I, you know, books on photography from the 1800s, that sort of thing. Um, and always often inspiration too, along with books is good television. You know, television is so different from what it was when I was much younger. So many artists, you know, after the, you know, the writer's strike, people started coming up with, you know, these amazing concepts, you know, it was just like a whole new world. And, you know, there's some television that I would take over a book, you know, mm. if it's super well done. And, um, like the first true detective, I really love the first true detective series. <laughs> you know, it was, mm -hmm. that was excellent storytelling. That was, that was sort of storytelling you could get your teeth into. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, um, so, you know, that's, that's where I'm, my inspirations are totally all over the place. <laughs> I, but I, I just, I just want to grab it all at once. Yeah. I get that. I, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to give you a chance to share some of your writing wisdom with listeners uh, who are maybe being introduced to your work for the first time or maybe longtime fans. My writing wisdom? I have no wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I have stories. <laughs> you know, I have... Uh... I, one thing I should say is I am so grateful that anybody would read my work. I, I just think it is such a gift to a writer when, first of all, when somebody chooses to buy their book. I mean, that's not only an investment of time, that's an investment in resources. And it still blows me away that somebody would actually pay money for something that I write. And I, because it is work, I mean, every writer works, every artist works, and I, I firmly believe they should not give their art away. Um, because there's a, there's a phrase that which we, um, that which we pay too little for, we esteem too lightly. You know, so if we get something really on the cheap, we don't take it as seriously. I, you know, and I think that sometimes happens with uh, so many people who, who, you know, write their books and throw them out there for 99 cents, right? The person receiving it for free or 99 cents thinks of it as a 99 cent book, mm -hmm. you know, and, and to somebody like me, a 99 cent book is something I picked up at the Goodwill years ago, a paper, you know what I mean? It's yeah. not it, when that book probably may have taken six years to write. So I, you know, I feel so blessed that people would, and, and just the fact that somebody wants to read what I write really freaks me out because <laughs> <laughs> when a writer sits down, you're just like, Oh, nobody is ever going to believe this. Yep. <laughs> 
because <laughs> there's there's a point at two thirds two thirds of the way through the book you know when a very close writer friend of of mine we sort of you know cavell about our our kvetch and cavell i guess is phrase you know all through our books and we get to the two-thirds point we're just like this is just stupid <laughs> who, is, who, who, that, what am I doing? You know, I'm such a fraud. How could anybody even want this or read this? And it's just completely made up. <laughs> and, but so, you know, I'd always feel that. And then you get to the end and you're like, okay, this, this can actually work. Um, so it's, but I feel that way in every book. Absolutely. Every book. And I, I can't believe for me, that this, you know, this novel that's coming out is actually my fifth novel. And then I've actually started the sixth and I never imagined I would have this many books mm. published, um, you know, along with Surreal South and various anthologies and stories I've published. Um, and in fact, just this month, I wrote a new story. Um, it's called Cold Alone that is going to be about 13,000 words and I'm had written it as kind of a fun short story for people to pick up on Kindle or Nook. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will have samples of Bliss House and Charlotte's story in it. But it is a Bliss House story. And it, it's just, it's like, it's not a novella, but it's too long to be a story. But I just can't keep myself out of that house. Mm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, and I love bringing people back to that house. So, uh, long story. Thank you. That's all I want to say is thank you for reading. Mm. Absolutely. Well, Laura, it has been so great to sit down with you. I am so thrilled to be sharing your work and uh, introducing a whole group of new readers to your stories and the characters that you create and I'm just so grateful that you said yes and that you were on the show. Well, I am so pleased and flattered to be asked. Thank you. And, um, you know, I, I talking about my work is a little hard, but you made it really fun. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> if listeners want to learn more about you and all your books, they can find you online at laurabenedict.com. You are listening to In Her Room, Women Writers on Life craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with poet, medievalist, and teacher of the craft, Anne Brannan. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together. <laughs>